0: Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is chronic pancreatitis. So what is chronic pancreatitis? Chronic pancreatitis is a benign inflammatory disease, which is characterized by chronic pancreatic inflammation leading to scarring that irreversibly damages the gland and results in a loss of pancreatic endocrine and exocrine function. It's characterized by atrophy and fibrosis of the exocrine tissues, and the scarring can be focal, patchy, or diffuse. The exocrine insufficiency that results from chronic pancreatitis leads to steatorrhea and malabsorption of fat and fat-soluble vitamins. And the endocrine insufficiency is diabetes. The list of causes for the development of chronic pancreatitis are basically the same as those for the development of acute pancreatitis. So this includes toxins such as alcohol and tobacco smoking. Metabolic conditions such as hypertriglyceridemia, hypercalcemia. Genetic mutations including hereditary pancreatitis with a mutation in the PRSS1 gene or cystic fibrosis. Autoimmune conditions such as IgG4 related pancreatitis. Anatomical issues such as pancreatic divism or sphincter of Oddi disorders conditions causing ductal obstructions, such as gallstones, tumors, and post-traumatic pancreatic duct scarring, and also recurrent idiopathic pancreatitis. The pathogenesis of chronic pancreatitis has many theories. This includes a two-hit hypothesis. So this is that there's a pre-existing acute pancreatitis risk factor that initiates that first acute hit of pancreatitis, And then there's an abnormal response to that pancreatitis leading to chronic inflammation and progression to chronic pancreatitis. This sort of fits with the necrosis fibrosis pathway theory, which is that multiple episodes of acute pancreatitis lead to ductal distortion and altered pancreatic secretions that over time lead to a loss of pancreatic parenchyma and the development of fibrosis. Another theory is the theory of toxic metabolites. So this is the theory that alcohol and tobacco and other environmental factors damage acinar cells and this results in their chronic destruction. Another theory is the ductal blockade theory which is that protein plugs form in the pancreatic ducts and that these protein plugs cause an increase in the ductal pressure, which cause an cell autodigestion and inflammation leading to chronic pancreatitis. And it's thought that maybe alcohol is through this pathway because it reduces the bicarb and water secretions in the ductal fluid, which can result in an increased protein concentration, making it thicker and more likely to clog the ductal system. And the last theory is the oxidative stress theory, which is that oxidative stress causes free radical generation within the acinar cells, which leads to membrane lipid oxidation and activation of inflammatory pathways, eventually leading to fibrosis. Given there's so many theories, obviously nobody really knows for sure what causes or why chronic pancreatitis develops. In our curriculum, it talks about describing the pathophysiology of the changes associated with chronic pancreatitis. So I think what they really want us to know is why patients develop pancreatic failure and what is actually happening. I think in order to understand this, we need to know a little bit more about what the pancreas actually does. So the pancreas has two main functions. The first is an endocrine function, and it does this through cells or endocrine cells that are located within the pancreatic parenchyma in little clusters. And about 2% of the pancreatic mass is devoted to the endocrine function. And these little clusters of cells are called islets of Langerhans, and they, on histopathology, stain with this light-coloured stain compared to the surrounding acinar cells that are a dark purple colour. And the islets of Langerhans contains four different cell types, including alpha cells that secrete glucagon, beta cells that secrete insulin, D cells that secrete somatostatin, and D2 cells that secrete vasoactive intestinal peptide, or VIP. And the purpose of these cells is basically for glucose homeostasis. So they control the sugar levels in the body. As we talked about in the last episode on acute pancreatitis, there are also cells within the pancreas that have an exocrine function, and the exocrine function basically has to do with the acinar cells and their related ductal system. And the acinar cells create digestive enzymes in their rough endoplasmic reticulum, which they then move in their inactive form into zymogen granules, which can then be excreted into the ductal system and activated in order to pass into the small bowel and help us digest our food. So in terms of the pathophysiology of complications of chronic pancreatitis, they get exocrine failure due to loss of the asina cells and destruction of the asina cells. And they also get fibrosis and strictures within the ductal system from the chronic scarring that stop the flow of any pancreatic juices that may be produced. And these two factors contribute to pancreatic exocrine failure and steatorrhea and the requirement for replacement therapy. In terms of the endocrine pancreas, usually the islet cells are initially preserved, but over time and with repeated injury, the islet cells get progressively atrophied and can no longer produce the hormones that they usually produce, leading to endocrine pancreatic dysfunction. The other issue that patients get is chronic pain related to chronic pancreatitis, The reasons it's thought that the chronic pain develops is from a number of different mechanisms. The first is that increased pressure within the ductal system or the parenchyma due to these obstructive type pathophysiologies I've already talked about cause pain. And there's been a demonstrated relationship between the intrapancreatic pressure and the intensity of pain in these patients. The other interesting thing is that there is a inflammatory involvement of the intrapancreatic nerve fibers, which is described as a neuroimmune interaction. And this is where they've found that inflammatory cells infiltrate around the nerves. Also, that there's an increase in the number of nerve fibers in the fibrotic pancreatic tissue, and that the amounts of neurotransmitters, such as substance P and calcitonin gene-related peptide, are increased in the afferent pancreatic nerves. So there's abnormal neural pathways that develop within the pancreas that increase pain. And then the other thing is that there's an aberrant central nervous system perception of the pain. So how do patients with chronic pancreatitis present? Typically, they will present with abdominal pain, and they may have a normal or just a marginal rise in their lipase. The diagnosis of acute pancreatitis isn't straightforward. It's usually made on a combination of the presence of risk factors, presence of evidence of pancreatic insufficiency, such as steatorrhea and weight loss, or changes in the glucose homeostasis, as well as imaging findings of changes in the pancreas itself. There's an article written by the American Pancreatic Association, which is their practice guidelines in chronic pancreatitis. And it talks about the diagnostic evidence for chronic pancreatitis diagnosis as being definitive evidence, probable evidence, or insufficient evidence. So in terms of definitive evidence, they talked about moderate or marked pancreatic imaging abnormalities, pancreatic calcifications, and a histologic confirmation. In terms of probable evidence, this has to do with an abnormal imaging finding or suggestive history as well as abnormal physiology. So you may find mild pancreatic imaging morphological changes or recurrent pseudocyst formation or recurrent pancreatitis plus abnormal pancreas physiology, which can be tested by a secretin test, presence of diabetes, or presence of steatorrhea. And in terms of insufficient evidence, it's equivocal pancreatic imaging findings or abdominal pain with either no history of pancreatitis, normal imaging, a family history of pancreatitis, prior ERCP with pancreatic duct stenting, or presence of risk factors of pancreatitis. So if you're suspicious, a patient may have chronic pancreatitis, how are you going to work them up? So you start by taking a history, and you want to know about their abdominal pain, the nature of the pain and duration of their symptoms. You want to ask about steatorrhea and weight loss, or fatty food intolerance that may indicate exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. And you want to ask about a history of diabetes or new onset diabetes, or loss of control of diabetes that's already pre-existing, to suggest endocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Your history should also probe other potential differential diagnoses that may be a cause of their pain. In terms of other history, you wanna look for risk factors for the development of chronic pancreatitis. So asking about alcohol abuse, their smoking history, whether they've had pancreatitis in the past and what their age was of their first onset of abdominal pain, and whether they have a family history of pancreatitis. On examination, you want to look at them generally, see what their BMI is and see if they have any evidence of malnutrition. You want to do examine the abdomen, looking for the presence of any masses, previous scars and any other potential indications for the cause of their abdominal pain. And in terms of laboratory testing, you want to do general bloods including an FBE, UEC, liver function tests as well as a fasting blood sugar level and a HbA1c You want to check the CRP and lipase to make sure this isn't acute pancreatitis or acute on chronic pancreatitis. And if you're worried about a pancreatic mass or other abnormalities, you may want to check a CA19-9 and also an IgG4 level. You can also do other indirect testing for pancreatic function, such as a fecal elastase or fecal fat, looking for the presence of steatorrhea. The next step in investigation is imaging. An ultrasound is often the first investigation done for upper GI pathology. Evidence of chronic pancreatitis that you may be able to see on ultrasound includes intraductal calcifications, parenchymal calcifications, and these all look like echogenic foci. You also may see an alteration in the size of the gland, and you can often see Pancreatic duct dilatation and irregularities. So, often you get this kind of beaded appearance of the duct, so, strictures and dilatation distal to that all along the length of the duct. You may see evidence of previous acute pancreatitis, such as pseudocysts or splenic vein thrombosis. A CT scan with IV contrast is another imaging modality that's often done for chronic pancreatitis. It can be helpful to diagnose pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis as well as looking for complications of acute pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis and to rule out other conditions that may mimic chronic pancreatitis. So for example, you may be able to see pseudocysts, portosplenic vein thrombosis, development of collaterals and pseudoaneurysms. The chronic pancreatitis In the late phase, can be seen as loss of the parenchyma of the pancreas, potentially chronic inflammation around the pancreas, fibrosis, and ductal findings that I've mentioned including beading and irregularities of the duct, dilated side branch radicals, enlargement of the main pancreatic duct and dystrophic intraductal calcifications as well as calcifications within the pancreatic parenchyma are all signs on CT scan of chronic pancreatitis. MRI pancreas is also often done to further investigate the changes that are seen on CT scan and it's quite a sensitive tool for imaging chronic pancreatitis. You may be able to see all the same changes that I mentioned about the CT scan. And also, you can get some more information about the pancreatic parenchyma, especially if you want to rule out things such as a pancreatic tumour. Endoscopic ultrasound is also sometimes done in chronic pancreatitis, but I wouldn't say this is a routine first-line investigation for this pathology. I just briefly wanted to mention some of the other complications that can happen with chronic pancreatitis. We've already talked about the longer-term complications such as diabetes, steatorrhea and malnutrition, but also longer-term chronic pancreatitis is a risk factor for the development of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Other potential complications from chronic pancreatitis include a biliary stricture where the distal aspect of the common bile duct passes through the pancreatic head. The chronic inflammation can lead to stricturing. In the similar way, you can get duodenal stenosis and gastric outlet obstruction due to fibrosis and scarring in the duodenum. Pseudocysts can form, especially in the setting of a disruption of the pancreatic duct. False aneurysms of the visceral vessels can also form, leading to bleeding, which may be the acute presentation with chronic pancreatitis. Portal and splenic vein occlusion can occur due to the chronic inflammation, and this can lead to extrahepatic portal hypertension that can present as hematemesis and melina. And you can also get pancreatic ascites or a pancreatic fistula. So moving on now to the management of chronic pancreatitis. Chronic pancreatitis should be managed in a multidisciplinary fashion with surgeons, gastroenterologists, dietitians, psychiatrists, drug and alcohol teams and chronic pain specialists. The goals of treatment are to modify behaviors that exacerbate the natural history of the disease, detect pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and restore digestion and absorption, diagnose and treat any endocrine insufficiency determine any contributing factors to abdominal pain and alleviate it, manage pain, and enable the pancreas to heal itself. So in terms of modifying behaviours that may exacerbate the natural history of the disease, you want to encourage patients to stop drinking and to stop smoking. In terms of exocrine insufficiency, you can test for steatorrhea with a faecal elastase. And a faecal elastase, if it's more than 200 units per gram, is normal. If it's less than 100 units per gram, then that demonstrates severe exocrine insufficiency. You can manage pancreatic exocrine insufficiency with replacement therapy with CREON, and treatment can be started based on a clinical assessment alone. So if they have diarrhea, bloating, and weight loss, then you can just start the Creon. And you'd start with 25,000 to 40,000 units of lipase per meal, and you can increase that up to 75,000 units per meal. And you can add acid suppressants such as uh, PPIs in order to improve their digestion. And a dietitian should be involved in the setting of steatorrhea. Pancreatic endocrine dysfunction is often a late sign in chronic pancreatitis, and these patients should be referred to a specialist endocrinologist in order to help with their glycemic control. A lot of these patients will not be making insulin, so they will require insulin therapy. Chronic pain management is often an important aspect to management of these patients, Patients should be referred to a specialty pain management clinic and the WHO analgesic ladder should be followed with non-opioid to weak opioid to stronger opioid prescription. And co-analgesics should be considered, including gabapentin. Specific pain management options for chronic pancreatitis include celiac plexus blocks, which seek to interrupt the nociceptive afferents, which go through the celiac ganglia, and this can be done via EUS with a blockade of the celiac plexus through the posterior wall of the stomach. And about 50% of patients will have an improvement with this procedure. Video Videothoroscopic splanconectomy is another option for these patients. And this is a more complete interruption to those sympathetic nerves than just a celiac plexus block. And this involves bilateral thoracoscopic splanconic nerve division and Basically involves the patient being placed in the prone position, a pneumothorax induced and partial pleural dissection medial to the main sympathetic chain with all of the branches along this course divided. There's variable results with this approach with a 70% improvement and about 50% of patients having a long lasting effect with this approach. Further management basically involves treating complications. So treating pseudocysts, treating bleeding from these false aneurysms, treating biliary obstruction if it develops, and treating duodenal obstruction if it develops. I talked about most of these things in the episode on acute pancreatitis. But one thing we didn't talk about was in the setting of chronic strictures in the bile duct or a chronic obstruction from fibrosis in the duodenum, surgical options could include a gastrogegenostomy or a Roux-en-Y hepaticogegenostomy. Endoscopic therapies are often used in this group for a range of different reasons. This can include to treat any extrahepatic biliary obstruction with stenting, drain pseudocysts endoscopically if symptomatic, for a celiac plexus nerve block, which I talked about, and also endoscopic ultrasound to rule out malignancy, which can be a difficult part of the management of these patients in the setting of a pancreatic head mass and chronic pancreatitis. A little bit of a controversial topic is endoscopic stenting of the pancreatic duct in pancreatitis. In the setting of a painful chronic pancreatitis with a dilated main pancreatic duct without a pancreatic head mass, this may be considered in a multidisciplinary setting. The principles are to access the pancreatic duct with the sphincterotomy, to remove intraductal stones, to leave stents to facilitate drainage of the pancreatic duct and this can be plastic or fully covered metal stents and this can be combined with extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy to help break up larger stones which may have formed if there is a stricture at the proximal pancreatic duct. This obviously wouldn't be helpful if there were multiple strictures along the pancreatic duct. The other thing that's mentioned in our curriculum is both a pancreaticogenostomy and a distal pancreatectomy for chronic pancreatitis. I think this is getting pretty subspecialized, and I've definitely never seen any of these procedures performed myself From what I understand, the indication for these procedures is for severe pain that's impacting patients' ability to live their lives and their productivity. But the decision about whether or not to offer surgery for these patients will depend on the morphology of the gland, the extent and type of disease and fibrosis and stricturing within the duct, as well as the patient's age and their comorbidities. So the surgical options include a number of different procedures that mostly are performed on patients who have a dilated pancreatic duct. The options for this include a Duval procedure, which is a procedure with a splenectomy, resection of the tail of the pancreas, and an end-to-end anastomosis between the pancreas and a Roux-en-Y limb of jejunum that's brought up. The issue with this procedure is if there's multiple strictures, it often fails. The next procedure is the PUSTO procedure, which is where there's a longitudinal incision made in the pancreatic duct, and then that is then invaginated into a Roux loop of jejunum. And this allows for drainage of the pancreatic juices into the jejunum, as well as splenic preservation. And this leads to pain relief in about 60% of patients in the longer term. Another procedure I've seen described is the FRAY procedure, which is where you remove the pancreatic head and then marsupialize the duct as it dives to reach the ampulla ovata into a loop of jejunum that's brought up. And this again is just aiming to decompress and drain the duct through a long longitudinal pancreatic Another procedure that I've seen talked about is the Berger procedure, which is a duodenum preserving pancreatic head resection, which is also then has the pancreatic body duct drained into a loop of jejunum, which is another alternative for chronic pancreatitis. And then I've read that the indication for a distal pancreatectomy in chronic pancreatitis is where there's a disconnected pancreatic duct at the mid-pancreas. I must admit, I have never seen surgery for chronic pancreatitis, and maybe this is a topic we could talk to a specialist about when we get them on the program. And that's it. Short and sweet for our summary on chronic pancreatitis. Hopefully, I'll be able to ask a few more questions about the operations for chronic pancreatitis when we get a special guest on the program please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It makes it easier for everyone else to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at first incision. Happy studying!